worship to stop when we look at God's Word. This is the continuation of what we've been doing. So um, for us, how we understand what we just did is that we believe every aspect of our lives is worship. Every, every moment of our days, every uh, penny that we spend, every bit of our attention that we give to things is an outpouring of what we value. And so this moment that we get to gather together is a moment where we say, hey, me too. We're all in it together. We're all doing the same thing. We're declaring with one another that he is worthy. He's worthy of our lives and our affections. There's this moment that that song is talking about. Now, if you've never um, been around church much or if, if you've never read the book of Revelation in the scripture, Maybe some of the questions that that song is asking maybe seems very far out for you. There's this moment that the Bible describes in the future where they're all gathered around the throne and they're looking for somebody who can open God's book and say and read it to them and, and tell them about who God is and what he's accomplished and who his people are. And they're looking and searching and they're grieving because there's nobody who's found worthy. And then finally, and, and everyone's crying, they're saying there's nobody worthy to open the scroll. And then they say, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> the Lion of Judah... <laughs> the one who came and rescued us. He's worthy to come and open God's book. And so that's what we just sang about. We declare on a regular basis what's going to be declared at this future day where every person, uh, whether they're blind or not, in this day, their eyes will be opened in a future day and say with us that he is worthy. So we're participating in a future moment whenever we declare he is worthy. It is reality for us who believe and for those who do not yet believe, it will one day become reality. They will have their eyes and their minds open that Christ indeed is worthy. Now, in just a moment, we're going to be back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you would go in and turn in your Bibles there. And before we get to there, um, I just want to acknowledge that tomorrow is Memorial Day. And so I want us to pause for a moment and just realize that what we're doing in this space today is being done all over the globe. Okay? There are a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are worshiping King Jesus, and some of them are worshiping in spaces that look very familiar to us, that look like this. Some of them are worshiping in their homes because it's illegal to do what we just did. There's some people who are hiding right now and running for their lives because they value King Jesus in the way that we just described. And one of the things I want us to acknowledge is that what we participate in very freely to, uh, here today was not earned uh, freely. It was very costly for us to get to gather in this space with this great freedom that we experience. And so um, one of the things we do on a regular basis as United States citizens is acknowledge the price that was paid just for us to experience and express what, what we just expressed, that Jesus Christ indeed is worthy. He's the author of all creation. He's the Lord over all of us. So I just want us to pause and give God thanks for the ways that other people have sacrificed their lives in order for us to sit here today and enjoy this place and this worship. So just pause for a moment and thank God for that. Father God, we thank you that we can come to this place and acknowledge you as king. Very freely we acknowledge you as king. And for those who have suffered great loss in order to purchase this freedom that we have, we just thank you for all the ways that demonstrate your glory. The way that you, Jesus, would lay down your life in order to purchase ours and to redeem us. 
to buy our freedom, God, we acknowledge that all of the ways that it resembles you, it, it ultimately pushes us to acknowledge you, your great sacrifice. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can gather here with no physical threat and ultimately with spiritual threats taken away because of your sacrifice. So we acknowledge it and celebrate it and say thank you in Jesus' name. Now, before we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I just wanted to, uh, if you're new to the room, we've been in 1 Thessalonians. This is our seventh week. So all the way leading up to last week, it had been encouragement. Paul and his team of missionaries had written back to the church that had been planted, and they had to leave them behind. And they were so thrilled that they were walking with Jesus. They were excited and encouraging them and saying, listen, we're so happy to hear of your faith. We're rejoicing that you guys are walking with Jesus. And then last week, it turned a page. It went from encouragement to exhortation, which is like encouragement with a kick in the pants. It's like saying, hey, listen, this is how you live this thing out. And so exhortation continues today um, concerning sexual immorality last week, and this week is just about their human relationships. How will they live out this gospel in the context of human relationships? The very first place that the gospel gets demonstrated whenever we receive it, whenever we receive the good news and the love of Christ, the first place that it gets demonstrated in our lives is how we treat one another, the ways that we interact with one another. And so the true test of discipleship is this, how much does our love resemble the love that we've received from Christ? And so that's what he's talking about here. And he says, listen, you had nobody, there was no need for anyone to write to you about this. You were doing awesome, but I want you to keep on, keep it on, all the more. So let's read God's word and ask God to bless it. Starting in verse 9, it's going to be on the screen. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing in all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that as we come before it, that you would instruct us, that you would correct us, and that most of all, that you would affirm us in what you've already completed on our behalf. That this good news of your love would become our teacher as we consider how we might love our families and our and work in our workplaces and love those around us and become more of a blessing uh, to, to everyone that we would meet. And I pray that this would become a testimony of this church, of your love in us, that others would be able to see our conduct and they would become worshipers of you as well. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One question that I regularly ask myself about my own family, and that I would ask you about your family, is what is the most distinct and recognizable family trait that you share with the people that are closest to you? I'm not talking about genes, okay? Not, not the color of your hair, color of your skin, color of your eyes. I'm saying, what is the most recognizable family trait that you share with those who are closest to you? And for whatever the answer to that is, there's a way in which that culture within your home gets developed. There's a way in which you demonstrate for our family how to contend with one another. We are very good contenders for things. Hopefully without being contentious, but sometimes so. That is one family trait. Also, I hope that our family is marked by love because ultimately, what I said before, the most distinct, recognizable trait of followers of Jesus Christ is that they resemble His love. 
This is how we know we're actually followers of him. It's the true test of discipleship. It's not how much theology you can quote. It's not how many scriptures you know. It's not any of those things. Ultimately, Jesus described his disciples in this way. This is how people are going to know you. If you resemble my love. It's not how often you go to church. It's not how often or how not often you say things that you wish you wouldn't say. Jesus said that the one family attribute would be that, that we love one another and we lay down our lives for one another. And so the true test of maturity for every believer is this. Are you growing in love? Christ instructs us in love and he also transforms our lives, our work, and our relationships. And so for us, we see this as our commandment, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's his commandment. So, verse 9 in this passage, it says that now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for one to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Two points today. First, that we're taught by God, and then we're going to look at some practical ways that we demonstrate this love. So what does it mean that we've been taught by God? First, I want to start with his affirmation. He's saying, look, you don't need anyone to write to you concerning this. So obviously, they had some demonstration of this kind of love from the beginning. They've been taught by God. And, and this also was an echo of prophecies that had been said about the New Testament church. In the Old Covenant, in Isaiah, there was this promise that they would be taught, instructed by God himself in the future. And so this would be a fulfillment of this Old Testament promise. In Isaiah 54, 13, it says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Christ himself would come in the flesh to become our teacher. He's no longer distant from us or working through just priests or prophets. He is in the flesh and now in the Holy Spirit abiding in everyone who believes and becoming a teacher to us. Despised, rejected, betrayed, denied. He loves us anyway and he demonstrates that to us and he becomes an instructor to us. So Paul's affirmation was first that they didn't need anyone to write. And why? Because God himself had taught them and he gave them that new commandment that was on the, on the screen. He is our teacher. He's a highly relational God. In the world of men, he stepped into the world not only to redeem us, but to show us what redemption looks like, to show us what we're created to reflect. Ultimately, through human sacrifice, every, every great hero, listen, every story that you're going to read about a great hero is, is at some point going to be tested in this fact because the greatest story that they're all pointing to and pointing back to is that Christ laid down his life for the people who would follow him. He's welcoming us into communion with him, and not only into communion with him, but into the communion of the Trinity. He seeks and saves the lost. Now, first, I want you to know that what has been broken is this. At, before all of creation, before the dawn of creation, God had existed in three persons in perfect unity with himself, both distinct Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he creates us, how? In his image to reflect something that was distinct about him. In perfect harmony, in perfect union, and honor, and glory, God had existed for all of eternity. And then he speaks us into existence to resemble this distinction and love that we would be both individuals but unified with one another as a people that were designed to, to reflect that uh, great glory that he shared with the Trinity. So that initiative that he took to demonstrate who he is in creation was broken because of sin. And from that point forward, everybody has been hiding from one another, trying to affirm themselves rather than one another. They've been doing the opposite of what the Trinity has done for all of, for all of eternity because of sin. 
And so Christ steps in and he teaches us how to love. How did he teach us? Well, first, he's welcoming us before we welcome him. And we're instructed in Romans to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. He doesn't wait for us to be cleaned up to be welcomed. He comes to us in the flesh. He takes the initiative. And he's saying, hey, not only do you receive this kind of initiative that I'm going to give you, but I want you to become the ones who initiate this kind of love in the world. He teaches us that. He seeks and saves the lost. He, he, uh, he was already content for all of eternity. He didn't need us in friendship. He designs us to reflect an overflowing of his love. He loves us first and the most, and we respond to that love by receiving um, and to one another and giving the same kind of love to each other. So, he sacrifices himself, lays down his life, sacrifices um, all, the, all of heaven. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that he uh, did not consider equality something to be grasped, but that he laid it aside and became a servant. And he says, I want you to have the same mind in you that Christ demonstrated to us. So ultimately, the walk of faith is one of receiving and reflecting. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in The Four Loves. He says, it's easy to acknowledge, it's going to be on the screen, but almost impossible to realize for long that we are mirrors whose brightness, if we are bright, is wholly derived from the sun that shines upon us. So in other words, whatever love and affection we share as the church, it is derivative and distributed from the one who received it from. It's ultimately a love that's been shown to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how folks will know that you're my disciples. If you become not only a recipient of my love, but a distributor of it. We become generous because Christ has been generous to us. And then it says this, that they're also being instructed. It wasn't just past tense. You've been taught by God that literally it's saying that you're being instructed by God. You're still learning this. So why in the world would Paul write to them and say, you need to keep doing this love thing more and more when he said, you don't even need anybody to write to you about it. Here's why. Maybe, possibly Paul knew at some point in the future that the familiarity and all the ease with which they were loving each other would become difficult. Okay? Look, if, if you've been around people long enough, you know that eventually it's not going to be easy to distribute what you've received even if your cup is full of love from God the Father. Okay? At some point it's going to be hard. So he's saying, look, I want to remind you that you should keep doing these things. And also, with, with Christian love, it's something that's never completed. It's always being learned. It's always being practiced. And we can always grow in it because we're ultimately not yet reflective of what Christ has done for us. Paul's writing this most likely anticipating that it would become hard. Love is always practiced, but it's never mastered. And you need to continue to grow in this. Let brotherly love increase. Now, how do we do that as Christians? You cannot give what you haven't yet received. That's the first thing. You cannot give what you have not yet received. So if your cup is empty and you have not been affirmed by Christ, you're not going to have that to give to someone else. If you've not been generously given mercy, you're not going to generously give mercy to anyone else. If you've not generously received forgiveness, you will not have forgiveness to, see, to give to one, someone else. Uh, the second thing is this. You walk into the church and you begin to see that all of us stand with some similarities. Every single one of us have fallen short of God's glory. And so we stand on equal ground and on equal footing when it comes to our story of redemption. So maybe someone seems a little more redeemed than you, but I promise you, they're coming from just as far from Christ as you are. Okay? We're all coming with similarities and 
similar needs. And so you look around here and you've got to practice seeing not how you're different, but how you're similar. Every single person coming to Christ has at least their sin in common. And it's very similar. Listen, Satan wants to tell you that the ways that you need to be saving are so distinct to you. That you're somehow special. You're somehow unique. And God's saying, look, I saved them all. You come to me. Come with all of your needs. Pursue that kind of similarity and, and practice looking at others and saying, hey, what do we have in common? What's the bigger circle that we all stand in before I figure out which circle I stand in that you don't stand in? So, receive. Acknowledge your similarities. And then you guys need shared experiences with one another. I need that. We need regular space where we can go beyond, well, how was your weekend? We need regular space where we're pushing in and asking, what's the most difficult burden in your life and what's the most significant joy in your life where we can witness one another's pain and joy together and walk side by side in friendship. And that's the last thing. We've got to go beyond being acquaintances if we want to be the body of Christ. We've got to be his body. We've got to be in friendship, knit to one another. Listen, wake up to what God's provided for you. Right around you, right here. It's really difficult to see sometimes when you think, man, I feel so alone. I feel so unknown. In so many moments, we need to be the friend that we wish others were to us, right? But we need to be the kind of friend that we wish someone would show up and be to us. And that's just hard. Let's just acknowledge that it's difficult to go beyond the surface. But sometimes if you share these experiences, you begin to acknowledge how you're similar and you begin to receive what only Christ can give you to give to others. You can become a channel and then friendship results. And you might be surprised by it because God doesn't always make you similar to make you friends. Sometimes he'll bring the most distinct people in your life that you never anticipated being friends with. He says, this is yours. This is a gift to you. This is your gift. C.S. Lewis talks about friendship and the four loves in this way. Look, he says this. In friendship, we think that we've chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our birth, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of a university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not being raised in the first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. There's a secret master of ceremonies that's been at work. Christ, who said to his disciples, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And truly say to every group of Christian friends, you've not chosen one another, but I've chosen you for one another. And I just want you as a church to receive that. You didn't choose each other. Some of you are like, I know. I'm still deciding. God chose you for one another. This friendship is not the reward of our discriminating and good taste and finding one another out. It's the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. So he's giving to us this gift to be part of this diverse body, young and old, rich, poor, everywhere in between. And he says, I'm going to put you together so that you can see that a demonstration of my kindness towards you through other people. And he doesn't just leave it there. He says, look, these things are going to be complicated, okay? And then he gets into some practical ways that you can love each other with the rest of this uh, passage. He begins to show you this is what it looks like for you to love one another, okay? So if you thought it would just be like a good smile and a warm hug, it goes beyond that. There's some real practical things that he says here about how you're going to love one another. 
He lays out these three. The first one is this, that we would seek to live a quiet life. Now, before I get into this, one of my prayers for my kids, and I believe one of God's hope for all of his kids, is that we would be a blessing wherever we go. That's one of my prayers, that whenever we send our kids out, that wherever they go, that they would be a breath of fresh air to whoever they're around. I pray that they'll be a blessing when we send them out. And God wants us to be that kind of blessing in the world. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, every blessing that God gives to someone, just start with Abraham and go through. He gives them a blessing in order that they might be a blessing. He gives Abraham this blessing so that his seed would bless the whole nations of the world. He gives all of us Jesus Christ so that we might demonstrate his love in the world. And so practically, it looks like this. First, seek to live a quiet life. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now this is as practical as it comes and it's totally opposed to the message of the world. The world is saying, look, try to make some noise. Try to be noticed. Try for people to acknowledge that you are a success and you can be affirmed and you are okay. You're okay. And and most people are stepping out into the world with this great question, am I alright? Am I enough? Can I prove that with my actions and with my work? And and this exhortation is, no, 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 seek to live quietly. Why is this so different from the world? Now, if you go back to the beginning of this church, it started in Acts chapter 17. You go read it later. The reason that this church was being persecuted was because certain people were jealous of all the attention that it was gaining away from them and towards Christ. There were people that were jealous And so this church was born not just in adversity, but the adversity looked like jealousy. People who didn't want the attention away from them and on someone else. So one practical way that this church could demonstrate the love of Christ would be like, hey, listen, we just want to live quietly. We want to be faithful and at the end of the day do our work and not be dependent on anyone. So live quietly. I want to walk through the gospel story when it comes to this command. Because this is a gift to us. It is the result of a gift to us to live quietly. As I said before, we were made for God's glory. He stamped his image on us at the beginning of creation. He spoke us into existence. And when he saw us, he declared what? It is good. It's good. And then after the fall of mankind, everyone has been seeking to restore that affirmation with everything that we do. That's the result of sin. In redemption, the invitation of the gospel is to be redeemed from that striving and to receive once again that good affirmation from God so that you can enter into the world and live a quiet life, not needing to make a splash, not needing to make some noise. Ultimately saying, hey, you can love each other in a specific way where you give honor instead of seeking honor. In Romans 12, 10, it says this, love one another with a brotherly affection. I love this. I love this verse. I quote it a lot. Outdo one another in showing honor. Listen, what it means to look like Christ is that we're not seeking honor. We have it to give to one another. This is what love looks like within the church, within the family, within the home, and in our workplaces. We're not seeking to gain other people's honor. We're seeking to give it away and acknowledge the ways in which other people are a gift. Listen, if you go into the world 
hungry for glory, hungry for affirmation, you'll never be able to give the honor that you were created to give to other people. So live quietly. That's the first practical way. Piper said, there may be scoundrels, but you can regard them as worthy of honor. You can count them worthy the way that God counts you righteous. Same way. <laughs> Undeserving. Unmerited. You can count them worthy because of what Christ has counted you worthy through the cross. Ultimately, give what we've received. It's not in social activism. It's not the way of making some proclamation. Hey, look at us. He's saying, live quietly. In J.R. Vassar's book, Glory Hunger, he puts it this way. God will make a way to renew his commendation over us, to restore his image in us, and to reclaim lost greatness for us. But our reaching for glory will not bring about this transformation. No. God will come to us, and it will be his work and not ours. It is reaching that robbed us of this glory in the first place, and grasping for glory is the one sure way to miss it. And so the way that of Christ is to step aside, to live quietly and faithfully, to outdo one another in showing honor, and not to grasp it for yourselves. Second way to live practically in love. What's the second way? It says, uh, mind your own affairs. Now, how is this loving? Everybody who's had somebody meddling in their life, you know how this is loving. <laughs> mind your own affairs. The second way for us to be loving to people is to practically pay attention to the things that we actually have dominion over. First, set the parameters to what are our responsibilities and intend those things, to mind them, to pay attention to the, the things that we one day will be held accountable for. So there's, there is a parameter to that, right? Like there's some day where you're going to answer for how you stewarded your life. And there's some things that are outside of that grass and there's some things that are in it. Uh, and, and the things that are in it, God wants you in love to tend to those things, to pay attention to them, and to say, okay, this is what it looks like to love everyone around me, to demonstrate the love of Christ, to take responsibility for what's mine, to be right, responsible for. So if you're having trouble to, to figure out the scope of where you are influential and what, what actually is your responsibility, what do you feel like if it goes poorly that you'll answer to God for? Or whatever that is, Set that parameter. There's a, there's a, a secular psychologist right now that, that has become famous just for saying, you should clean your room before you become an activist. Just clean up your room. Clean up your space. Clean up your corner of the earth. It's not like he's saying something that profound, right? All of us know this, but in, in, in reality, Christ is saying, you want to be a demonstration of my love. Mind your own affairs. Don't be busybodies that are concerning yourself with nothing you have intention of changing. Pay attention to the things that you actually are responsible for. It's the second way to practically love each other is to mind your own business. <laughs> mind your own affairs. Tend to things that need to be tended. And the third way is to work. Now, it, he literally says, work with your hands. Do something. And there's some degree of speculation about why he's saying this. In fact, later in 2 Thessalonians, he goes to them and says, look, if they're not working, you should not eat. This is what it says. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Yeah, see the difference. They're busy bodies, but they're not doing the right thing. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to do their work out quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, there were some people, maybe they were just so excited that Jesus was coming back. I mean, they were just, Jesus is going to come back. We don't have to do anything. That could have been why they weren't working anymore. Ultimately, there were people that had more means than those in the congregation. They said, look, we don't want to be a burden, but we're going to just hang out and wait on Jesus. And ultimately, they were becoming a burden. They're like, you need to do your work. And he was correcting this. He said, you need to be about whatever God has called you to do. And so there's possibly some that were excited, that, that led to this, and they need to be exhorted or, or encouraged and corrected. Hey, here's another way that's a better way to live. So this exhortation to work with their hands, it could be received by us as a change towards what is my responsibility and how do I need to take hold of it. And this goes for every age in this room. From little kids, there are play, there's things that you're responsible for that are your domain. You can just brush your teeth, you know, without parents having to ask you. That's your domain. There's some that maybe you can just clean up your room a little bit. Others of us, we do our work. And there's become this, this fixation with our work having to be meaningful. We want it to be something that, like, makes us feel like we're doing something important. Okay? All of us need our work to be transformed into vocation. In other words, we need our work to be transformed into some type of service to the world or to God. And so for everyone who needs that, if you're looking at your job and saying, you know what, not very fulfilling, it pays the bills, here's my encouragement to you. If it's God's means of provision for you right now, then do it with your whole heart. Nobody here has merely human bosses. Do you know that? You don't have a human for a boss. Ultimately, we answer to God for the work that we're doing in the world. We can give him the credit when we do our work well. So we need our jobs to become vocations, something where we're serving someone. It says this in Tim Keller's uh, uh, book on this. It says a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it's reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interest. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. How many of you know this is true? Like if you think it is supposed to make you feel fulfilled and alive, it's going to destroy you. But if you see it as a means of serving other people and ultimately of glorifying God with the way that you work, everything that you think might be forgotten one day will not be for naught. This is, it continues this in every good endeavor. It says this, everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make a difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless, unless, look at the next slide, unless there is a God. And if the God of the Bible exists and there is true reality beneath and behind this one, then this life is not the only life. And every good endeavor, even the simplest one, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. So moms, every diaper that you change, everyone who's mowing grass, every role that you play, if you do it unto the Lord, it can ultimately matter for His kingdom coming on earth. Practically saying, hey, this is a way a very specific way that you can bring about my love in the world and be more of a blessing than a burden with the people around you. You can contribute and not just take. That's how the followers of Christ wanted to be. That's, that's how he wanted us to be known. 
that would be demonstrating his love in the world who came to provide and not to be served, but to serve. That's how Christ described himself. And he's saying, here's the invitation. Come and take on my traits. Look like me and ultimately be dependent on no one. The goal for every Christian is to be truly free, not dependent. Because God is demonstrating more than a good life through us. He's declaring his glory to the world. He's making his gospel known. So ultimately saying, look, this is what's going to happen. Those outside of the church are going to witness what kind of community this is. They're going to see it in verse 12. So that, look, he gives us this purpose. So that, here's why you practically love each other. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here's, here's the so that, the why. It's because others are witnessing our lives. They're witnessing our community. And I hope that they don't just say that we're good acquaintances. I hope that they would say about this church that they love each other in such a spectacular way that it resembles the glory of God. Now, they may not have words for that, but they would come into this space and know that we welcome them in a way that's distinct and otherworldly so that others could look on us in the way that we provide for one another and seek to be a blessing to one another and love each other beyond the surface of just how should we we get into the nitty-gritty of each other's burdens and joys, and we see a preferred future for one another, and we say, I'm here for the battle and for the delivery of that. I want to be here for all of it. And so I want to ask you this question in conclusion. Are you an apprentice of God's love? An apprentice, that's, that's more so what we would think of as disciples. Disciples would have followed someone, and they were apprenticing him, they were learning what he was like and who he was and how he worked. And so for us, I want to ask this question, are you an apprentice of God's love? Because you can only provide for others what you've received from him. You cannot give from some empty place where God has not already sealed the ultimate question of your, are, am I okay, am I enough? Has he affirmed you in the way that only Christ can do through the cross? Have you received what you could not earn for yourself? And when you have, the result is you begin to resemble the person who gave you this great and generous gift. You begin to have that for others. You begin to have the same kind of patience that's been displayed towards you. You begin to forgive the way that you've been forgiven. And so Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesians was that they would grow in this kind of love, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. That's my prayer for you and for us as a body, that we be so rooted and grounded in God's love that it would become the fruit of our lives, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that it would go beyond anything that we were able to think, ask, or imagine. So I want us today as we consider this question, to start at the beginning. I want us to take communion together today, asking God to give us what we could not give to ourselves. And then we're going to say a prayer aloud if you want to pray aloud with me. If you would go ahead and take your communion cups. Nobody would hardly ever lay down their life for an enemy. And 
that's what Christ has done for us. And so I want us to pause and consider this question. How was I an enemy when God made me a friend? And let's take this great provision and rejoice in it that Christ's body is broken. Stand up and sing together.